Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. I'm excited to continue today our series that we've been doing um, for quite a while now, actually, looking at Jesus Christ, um, looking at his life, his public ministry. It's amazing to me. Three short years was his public ministry, and yet he has absolutely changed the course of human history. And, and so uh, I just I hope this has been a blessing to you. And, and if you've missed any of our earlier uh, uh, messages, you can catch those, obviously, on the podcast or through the church app. Um, but in opening today, I, I wanted to, really, today's message is, it's geared towards kind of the church or anyone that wants to be a Jesus follower, kind of like understanding what Jesus called us to do. And I, I think that that was a big reason for getting into this, this message series was just, what did Jesus come to do? What did he come to present to the world? What did he come to offer to us? And, and what does it mean for us if we accept and embrace what he came to give? And I think for every Jesus follower, for every generation of Jesus followers or what we call the church, I think there's, there's actually, and I don't want to be overly dramatic here in what I'm saying, but follow along with me just for a second. I think there's a danger in belonging really to any organization or any cause or any movement or even to the church. And, and, and that danger is that when an organization or a movement or a cause does some great things, some incredible things, and just, you know, blesses the world around it and that kind of thing, you, you tend to love that organization. So you start supporting that organization. You start, you know, kind of serving that organization and, and even at times, you know, defending that organization. But there's a danger in that. And here's the danger. It's very simply that the organization can actually become more important than the cause for which the organization was created. There's a danger. And this, just, this isn't just a church thing, but it's also a church thing. And so, you know, this is clearly, throughout this series, this is what we've been seeing with the nation of Israel. We know that when Jesus showed up on the pages of history, he showed up in the land of Israel. He showed up to the Jewish people of his day back, into, back in the first century. And, and honestly, I, I wanted to talk about this and bring this out in the opening because it feels like, you know, for this series, we've kind of been throwing the, the Jewish people of Jesus's day under the bus a little bit. We've kind of been, you know, dogging them a little bit and not intentionally, not, you know, uh, being overly critical or anything like that. But I, I think that the danger that they had, the trap that they had fallen into is the same danger that we face even as the current generation um, of the church. And, and what had happened with the nation of Israel is that God had chosen them to be his special people, but it was for the sake of all the other people's. He had chosen them and, and rescued them and then he had constituted them as a nation and then he gave them these instructions, this Old Testament law. And then what happened is that Israel started thinking, well, well, hey, since we're God's chosen people, since he cared enough to rescue us and then to constitute us and then you know, to instruct us with these laws, then God must love us more than God loves everybody else. That's kind of the trap they had fallen into. And so they kind of, their mission and their reason for existence kind of changed. Instead of existing for the world around them, they really began to exist to serve themselves. They cared more about their national identity. They cared more about, I'm gonna make up a word here. They cared more about their us-ness. It's about us, right? And, and, and the thing was, even within, within the nation of Israel, it got even more acute. The religious leaders of the day, they thought themselves even a step above the people, the regular common people of Israel. And so since God has chosen us to lead the chosen people, well, then God must really, really, really love us. And, and what happened is it was offensive. 
And it was off-putting. And instead of impacting their world and drawing their world back to the creator, they ended up turning everybody away from the creator. And that was kind of Jesus's biggest condemnation when he showed up on the scene. When he showed up on the scene, his biggest argument, his biggest you know, words and, and harshest words rather were for the super religious of his day. And he told the religious leaders, he said, hey, you've shut the door to the kingdom of God, you know, this work of God where God rules. You've shut the door to that work and you won't go in yourself. And because you won't go in, you're actually blocking everybody else from going in. Anybody ever had somebody stopped at a green light checking their phone? Yeah, you know, you won't go through the light and you won't let anybody else go through the light. How many of you always, you know, pray a special blessing over that person when you see them at the light? But he's telling them, you have become an obstacle. You're supposed to be the religious leaders to attract everyone back to God, but you have actually become an obstacle to what God is up to in the world. And here's the thing. I think modern Christianity is kind of getting close to that point if we haven't reached that point already. Our society is going crazy it just seems like so many things are being shaken and, and all of the chaos and the school shootings and you know, the political division. And it just seems like we can't even get the two sides to a table to talk through things and, and to work through policy. And our world is just, it's just becoming you know, really just this depressing place and there's anxiety everywhere and people are uncertain about their futures and economic downturn. You know, it's just like all of this stuff going on. And the sad thing is, is that not very many people are looking at the modern church, the modern Jesus movement to find a path forward into the life that God intended us to live. And so if we can say it this way, this, this danger for us as the current generation of church, we can't love the church more than we love the people the church was designed to love. If we fall in love with the way that we do church, then we wind up in the same boat that Israel was in. And so as we wind down this series of G on you know, the life of Jesus and um, you know, the last few lessons that we're going to have here, we're going to look really intently at what Jesus designed his movement to do, what Jesus designed the church to do. And next week, we're going to talk about it kind of in a really big sense and broad sense and, and talk about the community around us. And we're going to introduce something that we're going to be doing this summer that I'm really excited about. So you want to be here next week when we talk about that. But Jesus showed up. To, to kind of condemn the religious movement and what was going on and, and to restart the idea of religion because they had fallen into this trap of trying to protect their usness or their, their nationality. And, and really, religion had kind of devolved into this idea set that all that matters is what you do and what you say vertically. Like all that matters is what you do and say to God, and it doesn't really matter um, what you do to the people around you or how you treat the people around you. And that was the religious reality of the day. And maybe, you know, if you were in faith when you were younger and kind of walked away from the faith for a little bit, maybe that's what your concept of religion was. Maybe that's what my concept of religion was for a little while. Well, church is where I go to make sure that I'm okay vertically but I really don't want the church to affect my life horizontally, right? And, and maybe that's why you walked away from the church because after a while of having that mindset or that concept of church, it just seems like it doesn't really make very much difference in life. It doesn't really seem like church has very much real life application, right? It doesn't affect my job. It doesn't affect my marriage or my, my relationships. And so Jesus came on the scene and essentially what we looked at last week, we, we come away with the idea that Jesus said, hey, you actually know and you actually prove the health of your vertical relationships by how your relationships are going with the people who are around you. 
So he didn't just come to endorse the idea of religion that was purely vertical. He didn't just come to give a new list of thou shalts and thou shalt nots for, you know, governing your relationship with God. And he didn't come to give the law 2.0, the Old Testament law, which was like the terms and conditions for Israel to be God's people. He had come to judge what religion has come, uh, had become. He came to condemn it and to kind of show it up as empty and broken. And then he came to replace it with something brand new. And that's what we've been talking about in this series. But when Jesus would teach the, the, the crowds of the day, and when he started, you know, the, the religious leaders of the day started coming around him, these people who were in love with their national identity, more than they cared about the reason that they were a nation to begin with, when he started talking and teaching, it seemed like he was really opposed to all of their laws that made them a nation. He, it seemed like he was against this, especially their greatest prophet who had ever lived, Moses, from back in the day. He was, Moses was the one that had gotten them into, entered them into this covenant with God where they got to be God's special people. And then Moses gave them all the laws, the terms and conditions of existing in that covenant or staying in that covenant. And, and, and when Jesus came to teach, it seemed like he was against Moses and what Moses had told them. And again, we don't get this in the first century because you know we're not Jewish and we don't live under that system. But a lot of Jesus' followers of his day, they picked up on this, that, hey, what Jesus was doing was actually replacing that old system of laws. In fact, John, who was one of Jesus' closest followers, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, the first four books in the new part of your Bible, the New Testament part of your Bible, John writes about it in chapter 1, verse 17. He says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses gave us a bunch of rules and thou shouts and thou shalt not. But Jesus gave us the grace and the truth that those rules were meant to lead us to. Jesus showed us what the law was supposed to make our lives into, but what those Old Testament laws never could quite make us. And Jesus, maybe especially in his most famous sermon, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And you can find it in Matthew chapter five, chapters five through seven. Uh, it was probably one sermon that Jesus repeated a bunch of different times in a bunch of different settings. But Jesus said in the sermon, you know, several times, you have heard it said, but I say, You've heard it said, and then he would quote some aspect of their, their law from Moses, and then he would kind of contrast that with his own teaching and say, but I say this. You have heard it said this, but I say this. And those people looked at Jesus and they thought, well, yeah, sure, we've heard it said, right? It came from Moses. We heard it from our parents and our grandparents. We heard it from our Sunday school teachers and, and our preachers and, and the priests. We've heard all of this and, and the crowd and, and the keepers of that old covenant and that old system and those old laws said, well, yes, we have heard it said, but who are you to get to say something different? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Because you can't abolish what Moses said, and there are questions that they ask Jesus over and over again. I listed them out. I was going to share them, but it got too long. But it's all some variation of asking Jesus, who gave you the authority to say and to do something different than what Moses told us to say and do? But Jesus just would go on and he'd keep teaching and he'd keep saying, you have heard it said, but I say. The words of, religion, of your religion say this, but I'm trying to show you what the words of your religion were meant to create in you. The rules of your religion say this, but I'm showing you the kind of life that the rules of your religion were meant to lead you into. And he told him one time in Matthew chapter five, again, in this famous sermon, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
And we don't use that word fulfill very much anymore. What's that mean? It, it, it means to bring into full reality, to bring into full understanding. It's like if you're walking up to a corner and you see a shadow, right, of somebody coming on the other side of that corner. You can get a general idea of the size and maybe the speed of what they're moving, but it's not until you turn the corner that you see the reality that the shadow was telling you was on its way. And that's what Jesus was saying, that I came to bring the reality of which all of your laws and all of your religion and all of your sacrificial system and all that stuff, it was all just a shadow of what was just around the corner but it's here, it's here. And the life that Jesus lived was the reality that all of the religion had been pointing to all along. And now we're on this side of the cross. I mean, the cross is the most, maybe the most famous symbol. I mean, I, I'm, it's got to top Coca-Cola, right? I mean, the cross is, you know, the most famous symbol everywhere in the world. We know about Jesus and the cross. We know that Jesus gave up his life on the cross. We see it from this side of the cross, but his audiences didn't understand that yet. His audiences didn't understand what he was about to do. He kept saying it, but they didn't understand it because in their context, no righteous man really gave up their life for anyone. Very much less would any righteous man give up their lives for any sinners who were living apart from God. Any people who don't belong to our religious system, there's no way any of our religious leaders would ever lay down their lives as a substitute or a sacrifice for them. No holy man under their system would ever enjoy the company of people who were unholy. That's not how this is supposed to work, Jesus. We know how religion works. We're the experts on religion and you're doing something different and you're telling us we need to ignore everything that came before. And Jesus was telling him, I didn't come to abolish everything that was done before. I didn't come to say that all of it was pointless. I just came to show you the reality that it was meant to lead you to, to show you the kind of life that it was meant to make within yourself. And then at the end of his famous sermon, Matthew 7, 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as one who had authority and not as one of their teachers of the law. Now I got to thinking about this. Their teachers of the law had the authority. Because they were teachers of the law, they had the authority to say the things that they were saying. So what do you mean that they had, you know, he had an authority that they didn't have? How does that work? And so I, got, I thought, well, maybe there's, a, maybe there's a fancy hidden meaning in the Greek for this word authority. And so I looked it up and it means authority. Like it just, like there's no, it just means authority. But the, the word authority kind of, it, it brings in, in its definition, this idea, the right and power to perform what someone says. The right and the power to perform what someone says. In other words, someone's authority is proven because of the power that they are able to exercise to enforce what they say. See, that's why your kids listen to you. And Lord help you, if your kids ever figure out that you don't have as much power as you got them bluffed into thinking you have, right? I mean, you know, we can put our kids on time out. We can, you know, we'll just let that go. This is being recorded audio, so I'm just going to give you guys the video version. I don't, I don't want to be accused of it. We can do that because we can do those things, because we can back up or enforce the disciplines that we give to our kids. They respect our authority, but if there is no power 
to back up what someone is saying, then the person that is saying those things really has no authority to say what they're saying. And so the teachers of their law talked a good game about morality, but they didn't seem to have the power in themselves to be morally good people. The teachers of their law talked a lot about being good to everybody around them, but as it turns out from the historical record, we know that they weren't very good to the people around them themselves. The teachers of their law spoke against greed, but they were some of the most greedy people in an impoverished nation under Roman oppression. They taught about the forgiveness of sins, but they always seemed to hold grudges. But then came Jesus. And when Jesus started talking about these things, he backed up what he said with the way that he lived. He seemed to have the power within himself to do what he was telling other people to do. And his whole life, he would talk about forgiveness. But when it came down to it, he forgave the very people that nailed him to a cross. He turned the other cheek. He offered mercy instead of judgment. That's who he was talked about greed and he always gave. He talked about love and he loved the unlovable. There were never any rumors of impropriety with Jesus. There were never any rumors of him abusing or being a hypocrite. He seemed incorruptible. He seemed to have this power within him like he valued something better than anything that this life could tempt him with. Come on, somebody. It's almost like his, the quality of his life went beyond this life. Almost like you could call it an eternal kind of life. And so Jesus taught as someone who had the authority to teach what he was teaching. Now, hands down, elbows in, anybody know a hypocrite? Anybody here, hands down, elbows in, ever been a hypocrite? Come on, somebody. Hello, Jesus movement. Hello, 2018 church. You say you follow Jesus. This is why this is so important. This is why the new command thing is so important. This is why we have to rally around the teachings that Jesus gave us. What good is it for us to tell the people around us that God wants to forgive their sins if we won't forgive them for the wrongs that they do to us? What good is it for us to tell the wealthy in our society to stop being greedy when everything that comes to us, we end up spending on us? Mm, got quiet in here. What good is it for the church and Christians to stand on, on a soapbox and condemn everybody for being sexually immoral, but our marriage is on the rocks? And husbands don't value their wives and wives don't value and treasure their husbands. We have forfeit. We forfeit the authority to teach these things. We have no power to back up what we are saying if we don't live as Jesus taught us to live. If we don't love as Jesus taught us to love. And that's where we landed on last week. Jesus told his followers, as I have loved you, so you must you must love one another. And then he walked up a hill and laid down his life for the people around him. See, people can argue with your ideas, but they can't argue with your life. People can argue with your philosophies, but they can't deny the peace that's in your home. 
People can argue with your stance on morality, but they can't deny the love that keeps a marriage together through better and worse and sickness and health. Richer, poorer, fitter and flabbier. Just keeping it real on a Sunday. Somebody shrunk my clothes over the weekend. <laughs> Chelsea loved me so much, I figured I'd give her a little more to love. That's all it is. But, but do you <laughs> Thank you, sister. That's awkward. But, but do you see how this aligns with what we said last week about vertical and about horizontal? Our horizontal relationships, our horizontal behaviors, our horizontal actions and words prove our vertical relationship with God. Your horizontal life gives authority to your vertical claims. And you need to stop making vertical claims if your horizontal life doesn't look like Jesus' life. You need to stop saying you really love God if you really can't love a Democrat or a Republican or someone on the other side of the aisle or black or white. Oh, come on, somebody. Our world is broken and fractured and divided. And who better than Jesus' followers than to put the whole world back together with Jesus' kind of love? Come on, can you clap your hands in applause for Jesus? See, we said this last week. Jesus' new command is way easier to remember, but it is far more demanding to, li to live out, to behave consistently, day to day, not just as a discipline, but because you have been transformed and you look and you think and you act and you value like Jesus. But this new teaching, it seemed to go against everything that they had under their old religious system, those Jewish people of the first century. It, it undermined all of their religious positions of power, the priests and the Pharisees and, and the temple teachers. It seemed to undermine even the temple itself. And the temple was huge for them. Now, I got to talk about this for a couple of minutes because we got to understand this. When we read about the Jewish temple, we kind of think of it in, in our modern context. You know, we, we have like churches just about on every street, especially if you live in the Bible Belt, you do have churches like on every street. And even here in California, we have churches all over the place. There are many churches, but there were not many temples. There was only one Jewish temple and it was the place where heaven and earth overlapped and intersected. The Jewish people worship the one living creator God. And God, we know, lives in heaven, in the heavenly realm. And we live on earth and in the earthly realm. But there was one place on earth where heaven and earth overlapped and intersected. And it was at the temple. And within the temple, there was this room called the holiest of holies. And when the priests would go into that holy room once a year, it, it was dangerous and it was sacred and it was, it was a little bit strange. And, 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 and they would offer a sacrifice to God of heaven. And then this, this strange fire would burn there and the smoke would rise out of the temple. And it was a signal to the nation of Israel that the living God is still our God. And God still lives in the middle of our nation. This is how we know we're still God's special people. But there was a problem by the time Jesus showed up. By the time Jesus showed up, they hadn't had that signal in a long time. See, the first temple had been built around 6th century BC by the Jewish king Solomon. 
It was destroyed a few hundred years later by the kingdom of Babylon when they came and Israel had broken the terms of their covenant with God, so God took away his protection. Babylon came in and took them off into captivity, carried off the, the best and the brightest of the Jewish people. That's where you get in your old, if you grew up in, you know, around church, you went to Sunday school, maybe you heard the story about the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and, and, and then, so they're carted off to Babylon, and their temple is just destroyed by the Babylonian empire. And while they're in captivity to Babylon, Persia comes, and they overtake Babylon, and the Persian king, Cyrus the Great, he lets the Jews go back home. He's like, I don't know why you guys are still here. You guys can go back home. And they said, well, since we're going back home, but we're broke, how about you fund the rebuilding of our temple? And he said, yes, <laughs> it was an amazing thing actually. And so he actually funded their temple. He wanted them to feel good about their regained nationality, but he didn't want them to feel that good. And so he said, you're gonna rebuild your temple, but you're not gonna make it as majestic and glorious as what Solomon built. You're gonna build like an economy model of the temple. And so they went back to Israel and they rebuilt like an economy model of their temple. And in the Old Testament, the old part of your Bible, you can read in, in Ezra, Ezra's document, he talks about how those that remembered the former glory, when they saw the new economy model, they wept because it just wasn't the same anymore. And then for hundreds of years, they lived with that economy model of the temple, but still no signal, no smoke no presence of God. And finally, 20 year, about 20 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, King Herod, who Rome had installed as their puppet king over that land of Israel, he comes to the Jewish people and he says, hey, I want to restore your temple to the former glory. And so they, they say, okay, you have our permission. And Herod begins to build the second temple, what's called the second temple. And it was absolutely amazing. This temple is built up on a mountaintop. That plaza that is there is 37 acres of cut stone used to, to make that plaza. Up on a hill, different gates facing different directions, cliffs on one side, the walls tower over 100 feet high in some areas. And then on that plaza, they build the second temple. You can see it right there in the middle. And here's a detail shot of that second temple. This is a model that somebody did. But it, to construct this temple, they made these amazing, massively cut stones. These stones, some of them were around the dimensions of about 10 feet by 15 feet by 45 feet. One single cut stone. It'd be like a stone stretching from that pillar all the way to that pillar, from this platform floor to the ceiling and coming out about this far. Imagine if this whole platform was one big stone weighing over 500 tons and they made many of them and used them to construct the temple. Imagine a stone that big and then imagine getting it to the top of a hill with no cranes or modern machinery. And then imagine doing that over and over and over again until you get the temple built. It was mind-blowing. It was amazing. The sun would sparkle off all the gold and everything, and it would shine bright in the middle of the desert. And, you know, it's, it's mind-blowing today, but you can imagine in the first century world, imagine how impression, you know, what, what kind of an impression that must have given them. Imagine the awe and the wonder of that amazing temple that was the center of their national life. So they had this incredible temple, but they had no smoke. They had no signal. They had no symbol of the presence of God in their midst. But still, it's big. It's important. It's expensive. 
And so, of course, it was the epicenter of Jesus' life, and of course, uh, Jewish life, rather. And of course, the teachers of the law and the priests who worked at this temple, of course, they had authority. Of course, they were important people. That's why they walked around with their heads held so high and then treated the people around them so low. And then comes Jesus, a 30-year-old carpenter from Nazareth. He's not even from the temple city. He's got one pair of sandals and one robe. He's homeless. And he's surrounded not by the theologically elite and the intelligent thinkers of the day. He's surrounded by fishermen who never went to school. He's surrounded by tax collectors who the Jewish people thought of as traitors. He's surrounded by common people and then by the sick and the lame. And in that society, if you were disabled, you were pushed to the edges. You, might, you, know, you did something wrong or your parents did something wrong and that's why you have a disease. That's why you are disabled. Pushed to the edge. Prostitutes were around Jesus all the time. He went to parties all the time. He went to parties so much that they said he must be a drunk and a glutton. And Jesus shows up and he begins pointing a finger in these religious leaders' faces. And he begins challenging the authority that comes from being part of the temple complex. He begins to undermine the authority of the religious leaders with the people around them. He begins to challenge the leaders of the temple in front of all the people. And they looked at Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, not even educated in their formal, their best schools rather. And they asked him, who do you think you are? Who gave you the right to challenge us? Who gave you the right to challenge our greatest prophet named Moses? But Jesus was really popular. He'd do coin tricks. He'd heal people. He gave away free tacos. Like everybody loves the taco truck. Come on. It wasn't tacos yet, but, you know, he gave away free food. And so he was gaining this popularity and had huge crowds following him. And so they would follow Jesus around and they'd listen to his teachings and they'd try and trap him. And we looked at that last week. They try and catch him in in the typical hypocrisies that they all enjoyed themselves because they expected him to be just like them. But he wasn't. But they followed him around. And one time, Matthew is one of Jesus' closest followers. He was there and he tells us in Matthew chapter 12, verse one, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Now, Sabbath was a special day. You couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. But his disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. Well, you can't work on the Sabbath day. It's a sacred, holy day that you cannot work on. And we have this in the law of Moses. And it even goes before the law of Moses. You can't work on the Sabbath day. And gathering food is like work. So you can't even gather food if you're hungry on the Sabbath day. If you're hungry on Sabbath day, you just got to stay hungry on Sabbath day if you didn't already pre-prepare your meals. And But here's Jesus' disciples getting some corn, eating the corn. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus turns their own words back on them. And he asked them, hey, even in your temple system, don't your priests work on the Sabbath day? Like everybody goes to the temple on Sabbath. Well, who's opening the doors? Who's running the sacrifice? Your priests are working on the Sabbath. Don't they do that even? And, and Mark also gives us this scene. Mark In Mark chapter two, he kind of picks up where Matthew left out a detail. Jesus said to these religious leaders, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
In other words, God does not love the Sabbath day so much that he created people to rest on it. But rather, God loves people so much that he made a day of rest to serve them. But these guys had gotten religion so mixed up. They had gotten the vertical orientation so mixed up and completely lost sight of the horizontal aspect. They had completely lost sight of the fact that God had made people in his image and God was trying to rescue broken and wandering and hurt people. But things had gotten to the point that these men imagined that God loved his law more than God loved his people. They thought that God loved his law more than God loved his people. Now, how could they get to that point? How could they imagine that about God? Because it was true of themselves. They loved the law more than they loved the people. They fell in love with religion instead of loving the people that the religion was created to rescue. And this is the danger that we began with today, the danger that every generation of the church has to wrestle with. And it's never comfortable and it's never fun. And maybe we could say it this way this morning, that we cannot afford to fall in love with our idea of what the church should be and forget the people for whom Jesus created his church. Jesus is reaching for the lost and the lonely and the wounded, those that have been lied to, those that have had abuses and injustice heaped on them and they don't know how to get out of it and they can't see a way forward. He exists for them and because we are his church, we exist for them. Lost and broken, not home yet, far from a good, good father. Sounds like a lot of us not too long ago. Mm, thank God for his church. Thank God for a church that loves people like Jesus loves people. Amen. But jumping back to Matthew and Jesus is asking them, hey, don't your own priests work, on the temp work at the temple on the Sabbath day? And they have to admit that they do. And then Jesus says something so offensive to them. And it's offensive for a couple of reasons. Because of how massively awesome and revered the temple was. And how lowly and humble and poor Jesus was. And it was offensive because it challenged their authority. And it shook the foundation of power that they claimed. And so we asked them, don't your own priests work at your temple on the Sabbath? And they said, yes, they do. And then Jesus said to them, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than your temple is here. Jesus, what's greater than the temple? Jesus, what's greater than stones that are 10 by 15 by 45 and weigh over 500 tons? Jesus, what's greater then an epicenter of Jewish life, a national landmark, the thing that we get our national identity from. Jesus, what's greater than the signal that God wants to live in the middle of a nation? Jesus, what's greater than this strange phenomenon that happens with the fire when God reminds us that he wants to be close to us? What's greater than a symbol? What's greater than a shadow of something that is on its way? the thing that is on its way. 
is greater than the shadow of what's on the way. And Jesus was dropping hints to them that there is a brand new way that God wants to come close to the people. And if he stays in the building, then all the people can't get close to God. But there is something greater than the temple. And it's been on its way for a long time, but it is here. It's here. Another day as Jesus and his disciples were, were leaving the temple, they're, they're going down the long stairs and down the long hill. And as they you know, get lower and lower, they began to be dwarfed by the massive buildings and the walls that rose over 100 feet in the air. And one of Jesus' disciples, he looks back and he's like, you know, his mouth drops open, right? He's just in awe of everything. And, and Mark tells us in, in chapter 12, he, tells, he says to Jesus, look, teacher, what massive stones... What magnificent buildings here. And, and, and it's just one of those things that no matter how many times you see it, you know, it just still makes your, your mouth drop open and one, just makes you smile and shake your head and wonder, right? Like me seeing Chelsea every morning, just still just, mm, something about my baby. It's just, you know, it just, there's something. Jesus, look at it. We've been here, th- you know, hundreds of times maybe. And Jesus, look at, these ma- look at these magnificent buildings. And then maybe there's even a hint in his voice because see, he's a follower of Jesus. He's a follower of this new kingdom that Jesus is going to establish. Maybe there's even a hint that, hey, Jesus, when you, when you get your kingdom and when you build your temple, maybe we can make something like this, Jesus. And Jesus says in verse two of chapter 13, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. They they furrowed their brows at that. They looked around at each other at that. Not one of these stones, as big as this platform, over 500 tons, worked on for maybe years, Years maybe in transportation, for sure months. Years in design and year in in building and and stacking together. Now capturing their wonder and their awe and glinting in the sunlight. Every single one of these stones that make up this temple will be thrown down. And he uses a Greek word that it doesn't even mean like it can fall down or be shaken down or crumble in an earthquake. He says it will be thrown down. And they're looking around at each other like, Jesus, this is impossible. There's no way that this can happen. It's too big. It's unshakable. This was an area of earthquakes, and Herod had intentionally made this thing earthquake-proof. The temple design itself was designed by God, built by the Jews, and was now protected by Rome. It was the epicenter of Jewish life. It was an identity statement for them that we are Jews, And we serve the living creator God, and this is where he lives on earth. Jesus, we remember you saying that you were greater than the temple, but now you're telling us that the temple is going to be demolished? Jesus, when is this going to happen, they would ask him. And he goes on in Mark chapter 13, and he talks about it, and Luke picks up the conversation. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, you can go to chapter 21 and see all of the details that Jesus gives that Jesus predicted that Rome would surround the city of Jerusalem. Just a few short years after the life of Jesus, that Rome would encircle the city of Jerusalem and that they would build a wall all around the city of Jerusalem and not let any of the Jews out of the city. And they would let pilgrims come into the city because they knew if pilgrims went in, it would deplete their food supplies faster, but they would not let anyone out of the city. 
And the people were starving to death. And as you read Jesus' predictions and you even see his last time visiting the city, you can tell he's heartbroken about this. But he's warned them that if they don't change, this is what is going to happen to them. And he's disturbed about this. But he had predicted that the old covenant... The old way of living good with God, so to speak, in my vertical relationships, but treating the people around me in contempt and with war, it was all going to come to an end. And the very stones of the temple where they worshiped would be thrown down into the valley below. And 40 years after Jesus predicted that that would happen, it happened. The Jewish people did not repent as Jesus and John had told them to. They did not give up their national aspirations. They continued to hate Rome and eventually tried to revolt against Rome. And for four years, they fought against Rome from AD 66 to 70. And the Roman 10th Legion surrounded the city and nobody could leave. And then Vespasian, during the middle of the the four-year war, Vespasian, who was the general that started the, the besiegement, he went back to Rome to become the emperor. And he left his son Titus in charge to continue the siege, the siege, and the, the Jews within the walls of the city actually began to fight with each other. And by day, they fought the Romans, and by night, they would fight each other as they vied for power, as they vied for the normal kind of power that dominates and subjugates others, that puts me before we. And so they starved. And traditions and history tells us that they actually began to eat leather from their sandals and leather from their belts and would strip the leather off of their shields trying to eat. And people began to starve to death and the streets were littered with the dead. Until finally in AD 70, the Roman 10th Legion breached the walls, the second wall, and they killed everyone in the city that wasn't worth selling as a slave. And they burned the city to the ground. And they assembled the temple mount to that amazing plaza. And they took everything out of the temple that could be burned and they burned it. And then the Roman soldiers, the mighty Roman army, dragged every single stone used to construct the temple across the plaza floor and threw down every single stone into the valley below. And it was the last signal that the Jewish people would ever get from their temple. And it was the signal that your religion is dead And your God does not live in the middle of this nation anymore. Just as Jesus said it would happen 40 years earlier. In fact, today you can actually go to the southwest corner of the Temple Mount and you can see the picks of those stones that haven't been picked up and cleared away yet. And on that day in AD 70, the old covenant Judaism died And a rabbi, a few months before the end of the war, escaped to the coast and petitioned to Titus to let him start rabbinical Judaism. And that's the form of Judaism that exists today. But ancient old covenant Judaism does not exist anymore. It is outdated, it is obsolete, and it has disappeared. And Jesus told his disciples, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. But it seems like the only reason that Jesus said this to his disciples was because they were in awe of the symbols of religion. They were in awe of the buildings and the forms and the traditions 
of religion, a vertical religion. But Jesus was intent on telling them that the days of the old covenant, the symbols of the old covenant, all that they point to, or or rather that all point to something greater, all of those symbols and all of those shadows and all all of those days are going away because something greater than the temple is here. And I have come to do something brand new. I have come to change the way that religion works. And it will be made up of people. My new movement will be made up of people who live not just for their interaction with God. Not to just hope that after they die, they'll go to the good place and miss the bad place. But I will institute something brand new made up of people who live for the benefit of others. And I have come to give a new covenant and a new command, and it will be way easier to remember, but it will demand far more of you to live out. And 20 years after Jesus instituted this and predicted the fall of the temple, but 20 years before it would happen, Paul was writing to some Jesus converts, Jesus followers in the city of Corinth. And Paul had showed up on the pages of history as one of those Jewish religious leaders. He had been one of the up-and-coming keepers of the old covenant. He loved the temple, and he loved the power and the authority that the temple gave. He used it to have Christians arrested and even executed until one day Paul received forgiveness by a Jesus follower named Stephen, and it impacted him. And then Jesus, the risen Jesus, knocked Paul to the ground and gave him love and forgiveness and a chance to convert. And Paul, who was the greatest persecutor of the Jesus movement, became the greatest church starter of the Jesus movement. And Paul wrote a letter to some non-Jewish followers in Corinth. And these were people who had been part of pagan religious systems. They knew about temples. They knew about religious leaders abusing their power. And Paul wrote to remind them, do you not know, he asked in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, do you, hey guys, don't you remember? Didn't we talk about this when I was with you guys? I gotta remind you guys of a, of a game changer. I gotta remind you of something that Jesus instituted that was totally radical and totally brand new. Remember that under the old way, guys, the old religious system, the temple stays where the temple is. And you're only in touch with your religion. You're only in touch with your deity when you physically go to the temple. And maybe you try and, and take a symbol of your deity or symbol of your religion, you put it around your neck or maybe on a bracelet or paint it on your clothing or in our days, put it on a bumper sticker. Maybe, maybe you do that, but when you are away from the temple, you are away from your God. But do you not know, guys, that your bodies are temples? That Jesus came to do something brand new? That the way that God used to live in the middle of a nation, now the creator God wants to make his home in the middle of your heart? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you that you have received from God? And he's reminding them of the new thing that Jesus came to do. He's reminding them that God is doing something way better than the old thing. He's telling them, you don't need a priest at a building to be a go-between between you and God. You are the temple now. You are made into priests and priestesses for yourself. You are the temple of God. And this is why 
in services like this. This is why we pause and we welcome in the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is why we lift our hands in places like this and we, we close our eyes to try and shut out everything around us and we try and make an invitation to God to come in and, and talk with us and to change us and to work on us. And it's great that it happens here. But this is another building. And God doesn't want to live in a building anymore. And so, yes, we make space on Sundays, but we should do so much more than just Sunday. On Monday, God can show up. In your living room, God wants to be close to you. In your car, on your job, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Fridays and Saturdays, God has done a new thing and he's doing a new thing right in the middle of me, of you. He doesn't want to live in a fancy building anymore. God doesn't care about 500 ton stones. He wants you. He wants you to open your heart and your mind. He wants you to get to know him. He wants you to learn what his voice sounds like. He wants you to know that you never have to be apart from him again. You never have to be separated from your God again. Come on, does anybody have a story? Anybody have a testimony in this room that times when you tried calling your friend and they didn't answer? Times when you were looking around for help or, or, or consolation or a counsel and just nobody around you either was available or seemed to have the right answer. That in those moments, in moments of darkness, in moments of pain, in moments of confusion. You don't even have to wait for Sunday anymore. In those moments, you can get by yourself and you can shut out the world and you can have the presence of God available and present with you in those moments. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than an edifice and a building and a system that's open to corruption and power grabbing. Something greater than the temple is here. It's here. It's there. It's there and it's there. It's there. It's there. It's there in each and every one of us. God wants to live and make us his home. All over the room, come on, could you close your eyes and just Maybe make an invitation to this morning. Jesus, we make an invitation this morning. Let your spirit take up residence in our hearts. Help us to be aware of your presence. Your Holy Spirit, every moment, every day of our lives, Jesus, we need you. We need you. But sometimes, just like that early temple was a little scary and a little sacred, sometimes the experience at first can feel strange, Right? I mean, come on, we're real people. I'm 42 years old. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. To me, this is normal. To some of y'all, it's first few times here or whatever, you're just kind of coming around. We're weird. Come on, raising our hands, clapping our hands, shouting out praises to our champion. And we're not at a Warriors game? How many of you know how many of y'all know that tonight in Oakland, right, at Oracle Arena, Roracle, the Warriors fans are gonna be clapping their hands and lifting their voices and shouting when J.R. Smith runs onto the floor. It's gonna be 
our champion, won the game for us. Some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about. That was great. That was amazing. But listen, there was a new experience for humanity. There is a new way for you to interact with God. That God doesn't have to seem far off and kind of untouchable and unknowable really. But that God wants to come so close to you. That the one who knit you together, one of the verses says in the poetry in the Old Testament, he knit you together in your mother's womb. He put you together. He knows how many teeth you have left. He knows how many hairs are on your head. And some of y'all are making that really easy for him to keep count. He knows you. He knows you. Here's the beautiful thing about that. Here's the beautiful thing about what that statement says. If he knows you, it means he loves you. We, we kind of get this, like, you know, if we were to meet, you know, former President Obama or President Trump, or if we were to meet one of our social heroes or one of the heroes of our society, if we were to meet a Steph Curry, right, something like that, somebody great, somebody with notoriety and fame, right, we might get an autograph from them, but they would never know us. They don't know who we are. But if that person at that level with that much publicity and that much fame, if they were to take the time to know us, And that would mean that all of the initiative belongs to them. All of the initiative belongs to the more powerful person. It does not belong to the weaker person. Which means if the God of all creation knows you, it's because he wants to know you. He's inviting you. He's welcoming you. That was the life of Jesus. That was the the words and the teachings of Jesus. That's what gave him authority with the people to tell them that they could be put back together with God because the way that he treated them made them feel that he wanted to be put back together with them. He loves you and he knows you and he wants to live in your heart. He wants to walk with you and go to your job with you and He wants to help your marriage and he wants to teach you how to be the best employee you've ever been. He wants to give you wisdom and help you be the best manager. He wants to help you see the world around you with compassion and love and generosity. He wants to change the broken pictures of what it means to be human that we have, that we inherited, that we've grown up with, maybe that we've experienced ourselves, right? The broken hearts that we know just too well. And we're starting to get a little jaded, right? starting to build walls, right? Because it's happened more than once. And we think, well, that's just the way people are. And he's saying, no, no, there's a whole different way. There's a whole different way. You were created for more. And I see you. And I know you. And I want to show you the eternal kind of life. The life that is fulfilling here in this world. And then it's worthy of going beyond this world. He makes a call to all of us. Can we stand this morning in this room? The overlap of heaven and earth can happen in our hearts now. This intersection of the spirit world and this natural world, it it happens in our hearts. And honestly, when I say that, it sounds a little bit strange if you're not really in tune with, 
with the church world and with the spirit world, it, it sounds so foreign and it sounds even a little bit scary because there are some people that have just abused this. Sorry, there are some people that have abused this, but it was never meant to be that way. It was meant to fill us with awe and with wonder. Just like that early temple filled them with awe and wonder. When we consider that God wants to live in our hearts, it is supposed to fill us with wonder that God would count us worthy of being his temple. That our hearts would now be the place where heaven and earth overlap, where God's rule and God's kingdom could actually be seen in me through me to the world around me. And as that Holy Spirit lives in us and changes us and it makes us into the kind of people that Jesus was, then as we tell this good news with the people around us, we begin to speak with an authority that other people don't have because we have a power now inside us to back up what we are saying. In our horizontal life, Our horizontal love and behaviors give evidence to the power of our vertical relationship with our Creator. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.